The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. In this interview with Professor of Logic at the University of Oxford, Timothy Williamson, we tackle the ways in which philosophy occupies the everyday. Williamson brings forth the idea that common sense can sometimes not be fully self-consistent and can even lead us into certain logical paradoxes. We also discuss the ways in which philosophy is comparable to the natural sciences and how language is ill-equipped to describe people's experiences of reality. Most importantly, Williamson eliminates the arbitrariness of disciplinary boundaries when it comes to understanding life's fundamental questions. Timothy Williamson is the Wickham Professor of Logic at the University of Oxford and Fellow of New College Oxford. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. It's now time to welcome Timothy Williamson to Philosophy for Our Times. You've had a very long, illustrious philosophical career. What's the one question that has troubled you the most, that has sort of absorbed you the most? Gosh, that's, that's actually quite a difficult question because I've worked on a number of different things. And in, in a way, there isn't one question that's been troubling me all, all along. I work on things where I, I feel that I have something to say and, and often I realize that I have something to say because I'm involved in a discussion about them and then I he hear myself saying something and, and, and I think that sounds quite promising and then I could do something with it. So I'm actually not the kind of philosopher who's tortured by, by philosophical questions. I, mean, I like playing with, with ideas and then w when I think that I can put some things together in a, a way that reveals something new, then, I, then I, I do that. So as I say, there isn't really some kind of point of agony <laughs> that I, I'm constantly returning to. You're also a philosopher who's reflected on the nature of philosophy quite a bit. You've written a book about the philosophy of philosophy and you've also written a book, a more introductory book called Doing Philosophy from Common Curiosity to Logical Reasoning in which you argue that philosophy isn't something totally alien to us, it's there already in our lives and trivial in important ways. Can you give us some examples in which philosophy sort of occupies the everyday? Oh, um, well I think one, one that actually I give in, in the book involves a, a, a captain of the French rugby team to, you know, being interviewed ab about um, how he, he thinks about tactics. I mean, it's a, a real interview. And where, when you uh, think about tactics in rugby, you have to have clear and distinct uh, ideas about what you're 
doing and you have to sort of break a, a question down into its smallest parts and then or, you know or a kind of a, some kind of move and then build it up from the smallest parts that is actually pure um, Cartesianism, um, I mean, the, both the reference to clear and distinct ideas and, and, the, and the, the, the sort of analytic method of breaking things down into their simplest uh, parts. So that's kind of, kind of everyday. But um, another uh, example would be um, when my first child was, was conceived and, well, a bit after. There's a distinction that people were talking about between knowledge by description and knowledge by uh, acquaintance, which you know, was made, for example, by Bertrand Russell and is quite important in epistemology, but it's a sort of quite theoretical distinction. But I remember there was, you know, there was a time when I knew that my then wife was pregnant, and so I knew that there was such a thing as the, the baby in, inside her. And then the first time you know, I, I could actually feel with my hand the baby kicking, suddenly it wasn't just that there was this description, the baby is there, but there was the actual acquaintance with the baby through, through this process. And suddenly this, as it were, abstract epistemological distinction had, had some immediate emotional significance. So it's not that I'm constantly trying to interpret my life in philosophical terms, but that was just a case where what was going on in my life just forced itself into those kind of epistemological terms. And is fatherhood itself a bit like that? You can't really know it by description. You can only know it by acquaintance. You can only know what it's like to be a father, as it were, well, by being one. I think people actually exaggerate that, that in the sense that, you know, I mean, of course, Laurie Paul, the American philosopher, a colleague of mine at, when I'm teaching at Yale, she's written a book called, called Transformative Experience about that sort of um, idea. But, you know, I think that you can actually, you can have a general sense of what it's like in advance because many people have written quite vivid descriptions of, of parenthood. I mean, that you can get some of that from good novels and so on. And of course, you know, there can be things which are a little bit like parenthood, uh, even people's relation to their pets, which I mean, which are not parenthood, and, uh, but have some qualities which give you some kind of intimation um, of, of what's going on. But it, it does sort of, uh, it, it often takes you in unexpected ways so that, you know, it, in some ways, I don't really regret anything at all that I've done you know, before my children were conceived because, you know, I now have the thought, well, if I'd done anything differently, I, you know, I wouldn't have had these children. And, you know, very likely I would have had other children and, you know, probably loved them about as much. The fact is, these are the ones I love. I, you know, I, I don't love these hypothetical children. And, and so, you know, when, once you love individuals, then, then you, you, you have care about them. And, and so all these kind of counterfactuals about your life feel completely differently after you've had children. And, you know, that's, that's not something I realized would, would happen. But, it, you know, it's not just a completely notional thing. It's something that ha has real emotional significance and effects. So even though philosophy can start from sort of common sense and concerns of everyday life, many philosophical questions become very abstract and, and move really quite far away from everyday concerns, you know, questions about whether the external world exists, whether the world is made of matter or uh, monads, if we take Leibniz's view. How does philosophy go beyond common sense? How does it move away from these questions of everyday life to the more abstract? Well, 
I think it's actually very similar with, with natural science, because natural science also starts with common sense and, and some kind of natural curiosity that we humans, like many other species of animals, have about the world that we're in. We, we, you know, we're constantly asking questions about it. And uh, you know, famously, most children go through a period when they, they're continually asking why, uh, driving their parents mad. Um, and th those why questions questions they you know they'll ask why and you give them an explanation and then they ask why about that and and so that's you know already a sort of prototype of what's going on uh, both with with philosophy and with natural science so that you're look you're looking for some further explanation something else that is important in in philosophy and probably to some extent in natural science as well is that um, common sense isn't fully self-consistent. Uh, that you know, if you follow common sense ways of thinking, you you actually quite often end up in in contradictions, and um, and then you can't just be complacent uh, about those. You could have a drink and just try to forget about it, but you know, because we're curious and and you know, maybe not everyone, but, uh, but we have some kind of sense of dissatisfaction with with where we are. I mean, that that often forces us uh, into going deeper. And one famous way that problems arise in philosophy like that is with paradoxes. And many of the best ones go back to the, the ancient Greeks and, and maybe even further, who knows. But, um, and those paradoxes are really ways in which fairly commonsensical ways of thinking get us into these intellectual tangles. And then philosophy is trying to to think its way out of them. So even though common sense does have, as you say, these limitations and obviously the explanations that natural sciences, scientists come up with and philosophers come up with diverge quite widely sometimes from, from common sense. In your book, you also say that common sense is a kind of check on philosophy, that somehow any theory that is hugely inconsistent with common sense knowledge is somehow false. Well, how do we square the two? The fact that common sense is also sometimes misleading, but it also acts as this kind of check. The thing is, if it's common sense knowledge, then it's true, because knowledge implies truth. And so anything that's even slightly inconsistent with, with any kind of knowledge, common sense or otherwise, uh, because it's inconsistent with something true, is, is false just as a matter of, uh, of logic. But it, we do know an awful lot of stuff about the, the world, not, not, not as philosophers, but just by living in it. And I don't, even, I don't think this is something that where we're being very complacent, because it seems to me that even non-human animals know quite a lot about the world. I mean, they know where things are in their environment. I mean, otherwise they can get a drink or, or whatever. And, you know, it, it's not surprising that humans have knowledge, if, you know, given that many, many species have knowledge. You know, and then often you need some kind of check on a line of thought that, that, you know, some kind of reality reminder. I mean, you, know, you can see that sometimes in works of philosophy. I mean, again, with, with Descartes, there's a bit in the meditations where he follows a line of thought and he, he seems to be proving that he is God. And then there's a moment where you just hear the, the brakes screeching and, you know, and, and there's a hang on, I'm not God. I mean, this, something must have gone wrong here. And then, you know, then he has to, you know, pull back and, and so on. And that can happen in, um, in philosophy. And it can, and it can also happen in similar ways 
again, in the natural sciences. I mean, so for example, if you had a, a scientific theory that entailed that there could not be any observers, then that should be signaling a big red light because um, if there are no observers, then, then how do we get to know any of the, the, this stuff? And so you know, e even in science, there are these just kind of commonsensical checks. I mean, you can't do all the science just using those, but they can warn you when you've gone down what will ultimately be a, a blind alley. How do we know to distinguish, though? Because, for example, one of the examples you give in your book is this old argument by uh, McTaggart about the illusion of, of the passage of time. And, I mean, science today, theoretical physics today, seems to be moving in a similar direction. You know, seems to be moving in the direction that, well, time isn't something that passes. There's no such thing. You know, time is kind of static, as it were. And time, the passage of time is some kind of an illusion. And it seems like we couldn't possibly be more certain of anything else in our everyday life. The time obviously does pass because, you know, that's how we experience the world. So how do we know whether, you know, the scientific theory has gone wrong somewhere and the, or the philosophical theory, or there genuinely is something about our everyday experience that is illusory. Yes. Well, actually, uh, earlier today at the festival, I, I was at a session on philosophy of physics with, with a bunch of physicists who were all talking about how we needed to think of uh, time as something dynamic. So, I, you know, I, I think the as where the jury is still out within physics about that question. But, but of course, I mean, the point is a more general one. And so there isn't any kind of magical rule that, that tells us where something is too ridiculous to, to be true. Um, but I, th I think usually what goes, goes on um, is you know, th th that we start thinking about, well, can some explanation be given of how we could be mistaken ab about this? Um, and you know, if we, for example, in the case of you know, as, as theories imply, there are no observers. You know, the, the, if we thought, well, how could we be, you know, so observers basically are people, and you know, uh, how could how could people be mistaken about the being, being people? And then you know, that's not you know, if if they're people, then they're not mistaken in thinking they're people. But you know, in, in the case of something like time, probably w what's going on is that we have have these, as it were, common sense ways of thinking about time, which they're not going to turn out to be just utterly mistaken and having have no relation to reality at all, because uh, that, that wouldn't explain, you know, th these ways of thinking ab about time, which we use all the time, you know, have been so uh, effective. It's uh, what's much more likely is that there's some kind of as it were, relatively crude and perhaps superficial way of thinking about phenomena, which also have a deeper nature that common sense doesn't know anything about. And then uh, it's not so difficult to understand how you know, common sense might have settled for a sort of rough and ready way of thinking about time, which was good enough for practical purposes. And so what wasn't completely screwed up, but nevertheless you know, d didn't go to some deeper truth about, about time. And is that going to be the case for other big questions like free will or consciousness? Are we, given that we have these experiences, they will have to have some validity to them, even if, again, science or philosophy tells us otherwise? Well, I mean, if you take something like consciousness, I mean, you know, from a common sense point of view, the, a very straightforward correlation with consciousness, you know, is that when, when roughly speaking, when you're awake, you're conscious, 
and when you're asleep, you're not. And I mean, that, that's pretty crude, but, but that, that is not going to turn out to be just a complete illusion. I mean, there's obviously something to do the distinction between waking and, and consciousness. On the other hand, I think in that example, a lot of our difficulty is finding sufficiently precise and kind of revealing ways of describing what the phenomena are that we're trying to, to understand. I mean, it's not that, that, I mean, people often talk as though, well, we kind of know from the inside exactly what consciousness is, and now it's a question of how do we reconcile that with physics or something like that. Whereas it seems to me that's too complacent of a view on what we're getting from the inside. So, you know, we, we have these simple, distinctions between you know w waking and sleep and it's true that for example we're sometimes conscious of our own thoughts and and things like that but finding even the right language to describe the things about consciousness that we'd like to describe I mean you know people people often they like to talk about you know what it's like to to taste coffee or, or whatever the example uh, is and then they, they think of the the phrase what it's like as somehow already capturing the nature of consciousness, whereas it's a very crude way of talking about it. So, you know, I think it's again a case where it's not going to turn out that this is all total illusion, but it may well turn out that the most kind of revealing and perspicuous ways of describing what's going on are going to be pretty different from the ways that we that we currently have one example of consciousness is, is pain which people talk about and you know pain research has shown that there are really surprising distinctions which need to be made you know on the basis of experiences that patients report and so on about for example the difference between you know, having a pain and really feeling the pain and differences which, when you first hear them, you wonder what on earth are people talking about? But then, actually, people sometimes report th their experiences in that kind of way. And, and so, you know, we, we need to have some more refined way, just even of describing what people's experiences are, before we start worrying about questions like what relation they, they have to, you know, the underlying neurophysiology. Or, so apart from uh, being continuous with common sense, you see philosophy as also con continuous with the sciences. Now, someone might think philosophy and the sciences are, are you know, very different. They, they follow radically different methods. Um, they ask different kinds of questions. Uh, we want our scientific theories to be empirically verifiable or testable or falsifiable, whereas philosophical questions might be seen as doing something different being about, I don't know, how human knowledge all fits together or what makes sense more broadly. Why do you think philosophy is continuous with the natural sciences? Well, that's actually um, a matter pretty much of common experience in, in philosophy. So you know, w one example would be something like philosophy of physics, where philosophy of physics sort of overlaps with very, very theoretical foundational physics. And you know, often you have conferences where there are both philosophers of physics and theoretical physicists. Sometimes the same person can you know, spend some time in a philosophy department and some time in a department of physics. And they've got lots to talk to about each other. And, and so you know, it's kind of obvious that, that the questions that they're interested in, both on the philosophy side and the physics side, are pretty much the same questions in some cases, you know, and that it's really just a matter of, you know, kind of academic departmental lines that's dividing them, not the fundamental questions. And you, I mean, an area, you know, my own case, which is 
uh, like that is, you know, I'm interested in various questions, roughly speaking, about the the logic of knowledge and, you know, which, including things like what you can know about other people, what other people know, and and so on. And that that can be studied within philosophy by building formal models. But you know, those formal models are also studied by people both in theoretical economics and, and in computer science, uh, you know, and where, I mean, th maybe the emphasis a bit is a bit different, but basically, you know, this is, this is an area, it's called epistemic logic, where, the, you know, the people contributing to it are a mixture of philosophers and people from other disciplines. So, you know, it would be kind of crazy in these sorts of cases to suggest that the, oh, there's some deep difference between the philosophy and the non-philosophy when we're just talking about this exactly the same questions and as I say we, we you know because we come from different disciplinary backgrounds our you know our ex expectations and methods may sometimes be a bit different but but you know we can communicate and you know results that they prove can be of interest to me and results that I prove can be of interest to, to them and, and, and so on. So before we even get into any kind of sort of deep analysis of what these subjects are, it's just clear from experience that there is not this kind of big cliff between philosophy and, and the rest of the, the science. One, one difference that one might point out is the role that the history of each discipline plays in, say, philosophy on the one hand and science on the other hand. Most scientists don't go on to study the history of science in order to practice science, but a lot of contemporary philosophy is based on picking up from you know, other philosophers of the past and engaging with the history of philosophy to think about these problems, to, to find out what the problems are in the first place and sometimes even to see different ways of thinking about contemporary philosophical puzzles that maybe have been forgotten. What do you see the role of the history of philosophy being here in relation to this distinction between science and philosophy? Well, I think in the kind of areas of overlap that I was talking about, again, you, you don't actually find very much difference. So in, in philosophy of physics, it's true that the you know the philosophers are I mean they're very interested in in the history from roughly from Einstein on but they're but they're also you know somewhat interested in what Newton thought and you know and in pretty much the same with the science with the scientists um, you know and I was trained in both mathematics and philosophy and and my experience is that you know thoughtful mathematicians I mean they don't study the history of mathematics but they actually know quite a bit about relevant parts of the the history of mathematics and you know with things like the definition of a continuous function I mean the mathematicians they're aware of the problems in the the history of mathematics that led to you know the, the ways that mathematicians now have of of handling those questions, and which m motivate the kind of definitions that they make. I mean, it's probably the case that in some branches of uh, philosophy, the quite distant past is more present. You know, in large areas of say of moral philosophy, you know, Aristotle and Kant are, are you know still massive figures. It, but I mean that that varies and of course in moral philosophy you also get people who are using ideas from formal decision theory where again if they're interested in the history at all, they're interested in relatively recent history. I mean my experience is that very often 
when there are advances in contemporary philosophy, we can kind of look back and see, oh, this was maybe what so-and-so was getting at, but we, we would not have been able to, to get the idea just by studying them. So you know, an example is uh, the idea of possible worlds, which is, is very, very important in a lot of uh, contemporary logic and, and metaphysics and so on. And, um, and that, that idea is in Leibniz. Um, but in, I don't think people could have got it or it's, as it were, its use from Leibniz, because in Leibniz, it's these possible worlds, their ideas in the mind of God, and you know, people didn't, didn't anymore want to have God in their theory. So that what happened was, in fact, that you know, Rudolf Carnap, um, in, in thinking about how to interpret certain kinds of languages, he, he start, needed things, th things at the level of language, not at the level of God, which were called state descriptions. And then he realized, well, actually, these state descriptions are quite like Leibniz's possible worlds. And so you know, now Leibniz looks very far-sighted because he was talking about possible worlds. But, but I think if people had just tried to do things by studying Leibniz, they wouldn't have got anywhere. It, they, they had to be focusing on something different. And then they realized, in retrospect, that, that there was a kind of forerunner for what they're doing in the, in the past philosophy. And I, th I think it often works that way. Timothy Williamson, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.